Voices in the Wind, a report on the creative experience in the contemporary world. I'm Oscar Brand, another Voice in the Wind. Today, Henry Miller ascribes his art to it. Most of us is going ahead without any instruction from our ego. And that's the it, an un... What, you can't say what it is. We don't know what it is. Do you see what I mean? But anyhow, I would say that it played a great role <laughs> in my writing. <laughs> Artist Bill Schaff, who translates his fantasies into works of art. Writer Henry Miller, on the other hand, wonders if his fantasies prove that he's mad. The one dream I have, I think it's very significant about me and my, my relation to my world around me, say America, let us say. And that is this dream that it recurred, it, it stopped now, but it had recurred for many years. I might be shaving myself, looking in the mirror, and suddenly there's a different man. Isn't my face somebody else looking back at me? And then I go crazy. I don't know what I do, but I know the next thing is that I'm in the insane asylum. And I don't remember anything that goes on there, except that I'm there quite a long while, it seems to me, and I'm dying to get out. And one day I managed to escape. I'm always am climbing a high wall and dropping over into freedom, don't you know? Escaping the asylum. But when I do and I land on my feet, I look to right and left and there I see a couple coming toward me and they look like friendly people and I wave and hello, come on, like that, glad to meet someone, talk to someone. I begin to talk and they shake their heads uh, don't no comprehension, no co no compre. You know what I mean? A terrible, then a terrible sense of devastation overtakes. Then I know I am really nuts. <laughs> Do you know that? So, but then the dream ends. Fortunately, yeah, yeah. So that's maybe where I'm at now. That I'm nuts, but that I have accepted it. Do you see what I mean? <laughs> I'm nuts in my own way. You know? Once there was a time when travelers to France would be given secret monies by close friends and asked in hushed tones, please bring back something by Henry Miller. Tropic of Cancer, Max and the Phagocytes, Black Spring, or Tropic of Capricorn. You see, at the time, the French government would sanction publication of any profane work, so long as it wasn't written in French. Well, it wasn't until 1961 that Grove Press, fighting from court to court, produced American publications of this very American author. There were many who would agree with Miller's estimation of his own work. A gob of spit in the face of art, a kick in the pants to God, man, destiny, time, love, and beauty. Henry Miller lives on the Pacific Palisades in California, and our roving reporter, Connie Goldman, wheedled an invitation to visit him and record his essays in self-revelation. I'm a contradiction. I'm a contradiction in many ways. I must tell you, you'll discover that as you get to know me better. 
but it's already apparent, I imagine, in my work, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it's also yes. apparent to me that you're a very religious man, but you probably have no religion. That's right. I have the religion of no religion. Do you know what I mean? That is to say, without belonging to any sect or cult or group or religious organization, I have a deeply religious feeling about life and the world in general, do you know? To be religious in the sense that I mean is to enjoy life, to accept life for all that it, has, that it gives us. Do you see? Not to try to change it and uh, make things better, but to accept what is given and make the most of it. Of course, there is a contradiction right away because I have been fighting against but I fight against the status quo, do you understand? Um, there have been many, I mean, history is an endless, endless thing. You know what I mean? There have been many, many varieties of social organization, uh, nationhood, uh, savagery, uh, primitive tribes, and so on. I am more for the primitive man than for the civilized man, do you see? I think it's only the primitives who still have culture. But what about you? Are you a primitive man or a cultured man? Or do you consider I'm yourself a some of both? Of my age, you see, and of my upbringing. Sure, I'm a. I hope I'm a civilized man in the in that in that sense of the word. But uh, I despise this civilization. Once again, do you see? I uh, am at odds with it. Uh, I find that the way the primitives live, especially people like the Bushmen and the Pygmies and the Zulus, people like that, and certain African tribes, they are living more to my liking than the way we live here. Now explain that more fully. Well, uh, they are at one with their life, with their way of life. We're at odds with our way of life. Nobody in this world, in the, in the Western world, or maybe even including the East, I could include China and India, they're not at home, at peace with themselves. They're warring all the time, either with their neighbors or with themselves. Now, the pygmies, to me, are an ideal people who are at peace with themselves and at harmony with their neighbors. Let's talk about Henry Miller and about the wars that he's had with himself. Well, I guess you'll have to prod me there. Uh, you see, it began at home with my parents. My parents and I are two, were two different species, it seemed. Uh, we, they, they couldn't understand what I was driving at, and I despised their way of thinking. In fact, I don't think they did very much thinking at all, do you see? Uh, my mother and father, they never cracked a book. <laughs> my father did once in his late life tell me, Henry, yes, I did once read a book, and of all things, it was this title, which I cannot understand, The Stones of Venice by Ruskin. Yes. I began reading at a very early age when my mother would leave me downstairs with my grandfather who was a tailor who sat on the bench and he made coats. 
And uh, he would give me little needle and thread and a piece of canvas, you know, to sew on, tell me to make a pair of pants. But usually I would come down with my little books to read. Robinson Crusoe, you know, Aladdin and the Wonderful Lamp, things like that. Uh, I, and stories from the Bible and, and from Shakespeare, tales from Shakespeare, things. I know that you've read a great deal of the world's literature. Yes, yes. So it always strikes me so strange to hear you say, either in your writings or to an audience or in an interview, to, to say to people, don't look for answers in books. Don't read. Live. That's right. That's right. I do do say that. And I who have read... It's because I read so much, maybe, that I have the presumption to talk that way. But even in that talk I gave at the uh, Jack Garfine's the other day, I told people, don't ask me always my opinion of a certain writer. Uh, your, is, your opinion is the important one not what the other person thinks. When did Henry Miller discover that? I know that at first you wanted to write like the people that you appreciated, the writers that you admired. Well, yes, that's true enough. But then those were very, I thought, very distinctive writers, don't you know? Uh, for instance, who I wanted to be like, write like, I would have given my right arm is Dostoevsky. And, of course, that was an impossibility. I knew that from the start. But, you see, I aimed high. I mean, I wasn't going to write like, uh, what, like the bestsellers. Do you, do you see what I mean? I never read the bestsellers, I must say. I never read those books, those magazines that boys read in their teens, tales, detective stories, and so on. Later in life, of course, I read... The famous one, Sherlock Holmes, don't you know? Yes. But uh, other than that, I have never read detective stories. I could never understand the great passion for them. Well, let's talk about how you went about learning how to write. It took you a long time to finally get around... By trying, like you learn how to swim by going into the water, plunging in. Do you understand? That's how we learned in the... Brooklyn and, and the east side of New York, they threw you off the dock. You sank or swam. I didn't imitate or emu I emulated, if that's the word, emulated many men. Now, for instance, the man, I always forget his name, who wrote Winesburg, Ohio. I loved that man's writing. He wrote The Triumph of the Egg, Sherwood Anderson. Sherwood Anderson. Sherwood Anderson. I loved Sherwood Anderson. I didn't think so much of a contemporary of his, uh, Frank, was it? Frank what? He, uh, he was like the uh, espouser of Americanism. Uh, what, do you remember? You remember this period at all, the 1920s, you know? There were very mm -hmm. interesting men then. Theodore Dreiser, I mentioned, Sinclair Lewis. And there was a man that is completely forgotten today, whom I later became acquainted with, and who is, to my mind, has written some of the greatest things in the English language in modern times. And you never hear his name. John Coper Poes. Do you know that? No, no, I don't. Uh, well... You see, here are all the people that you admired. You admired the problems that they tackled in their writing, and you admired their style. 
and you wanted to write like a little bit of all of them. And you say that you you practiced, but you really didn't no, succeed, no, I didn't did you? Really, I didn't do so much practicing. I started right in when I when I felt that I could write. I told you in in the the audience the other day how I had made one effort. And then threw the pencil away and said, I never will tell, be able. Tell me the story again. Well, I was sitting there at the kitchen table with the woman I was then going with. And I suddenly said, have you got a piece of paper or a pad? I think I can write something. And she gave me a little pencil. That's what I always remember. That size, you know, about two inches long. And uh, I wrote a few lines, say three or four lines. And I suddenly stopped and threw the pencil away. I had run out of uh, my idea already. And I said to her, no, I don't think I'll ever be able to do it. Why do you think that you gave up then? What do you think was standing in your way all those years when you felt you were a writer and couldn't write? Well, um, wait a minute. There's two distinct different periods there. One is when... um, I don't know yet that I have that I have any inclination to write, and then from my excessive reading, I think I began to feel that I might be a writer one day. And I, at the age of sixteen or seventeen, I, who was already irreligious, I remember praying to God in bed at night, God, please make me a writer, but a great writer. <laughs> I added that. <laughs> Uh, um, now then, there came a period after that in which I didn't do anything. I didn't even try, do you know? In fact, I was so content with reading men, uh, like where the people today are glued to the TV, you know. I was glued to books, you might say. And what a healthy difference, huh? Uh, because, but then... Oh, yes, you asked me. Then I know what started it was my wife, my second wife, whom I called Mona in the books. It was she who said, listen, you can write. I know it. She read something I had written. I had shown it to her. And she said, and you don't like that job you're at. I was the employment manager of the Western Union. Quit it, and I'll see that you uh, get along, that you live. I'll take it on my shoulder. And she did, you know. And she really was my inspiration, my muse, and my support. (laughs) Would you say that you're a natural writer? I think I am, yes. I think that is the case, right. Because as someone asked in the audience the other day, do I do a lot of changing? I don't. I make little changes. Do you see what I mean? Because we all notice whatever, even if you write a letter... You notice a word or a phrase that you could put better. Do you know what I mean? In that sense, I make little changes, but not radical ones. Not. Let's talk about the process of how you write, uh, how you used to write when you were living in Paris. Did you get organized? Did you well, sit no, down at a table? Same, same way, always. It's always been the same. It doesn't matter where I am, where I, as long as I have a place to put the typewriter. I don't type anymore on account of my blind eye. But um, all I needed was a table and 
the paper and the machine, you see. That, that was all. And uh, I was like uh, saying to a horse, slap him on the back and say, go, you know, huh? I said to myself, go. And by the way, I don't know if you know of a book about the it, not the id like Freud, but the it. Uh, this man was a, was a disciple of Freud at one time, and I forget his name, unfortunately, but he wrote a wonderful book about the it. Now, this is very important to understand. It answers a lot of questions. Uh, who is the one who is doing the thing? You know we have a great autonomic system. We don't tell our stomachs to digest our food or our heart to beat, do we? No, all the, most of us is going ahead without any instruction from our ego. And that's the it. And on what? You can't say what it is. We don't know what it is. Do you see what I mean? But anyhow, I would say that it played a great role <laughs> in my writing because um, I would sometimes become so obsessed that I would sort of go like that with my fist and say, stop it up there, turn it off, turn it off, I can't stand it. It was going too strong, you know. I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep. It was always the urge to go and pour out more words. That was particularly the case when I wanted to write a book on D.H. Lawrence, I remember. Uh, shortly after I met Anna East Nin, the, the, the first book that she tried to write was on D.H. Lawrence. She called it D.H. Lawrence, some kind of study. And uh, I'd, I had read Lawrence even before going to Paris. But then I think through her, I began rereading Lawrence, and I got very engrossed in his work and very en enamored of his style. I still think it's, I think... A, a book like Apocalypse is a marvelous book. Um, but I decided then that I would write a book about him. I don't know how that came about. I think that I had, my publisher had said, had, had made the suggestion, Henry, why don't you write it? You talk about him so much, and so I must have talked everyone's ears off about it. So, I wrote about 700 pages, I would say, and I found myself in such a morass, in a jungle, in such contradictions that I, that I couldn't see my way out of it, and I gave it up. Is that but during that time when I was writing about Lawrence, the ideas kept pouring in on me. That was when I used to raise my hand, because I was writing on my cuff. I was writing anywhere, a matchbox. I'd write down a word that would be enough to set me off, don't you know? How did you simplify? How did you throw all that away so that you could write the best things that you've written? Simplify. How did you become, well, the kind of thing that you talk about in all your yeah. writings, more I yourself? I think that, that probably, I think, that the Zen philosophy had a great influence on me. Reading the Zen masters, they are so wonderful. <laughs> You know, I ha they make you laugh. They're saying the most profound things, and they say, don't take it seriously, you know. And they, I think, correct, because I was fighting in, in the world. I was fighting the very things that were in me, I'd use, see. Yes, and maybe they still are. 
because my son doesn't always see eye to eye with me, you know, and he tells me I'm quite a, a tyrant and a Germanic sort of a guide, you know, a Hitlerian type, he calls me. Imagine. Pretty strong word. Pretty, yeah, yeah, but he means that I, I have these tremendous convictions and I won't let anybody tell me differently, do you see? I'm not one, I hate to argue, by the way, Either the person and I are in accord and we can talk or we uh, disagree and we don't talk. That's how I generally get along. I don't waste time. I don't waste time trying to convince the other person. But you've certainly written a lot of books trying to yes. convince people of something. Uh, yes, I, I think. I don't know if for that I was trying to convince them. Maybe what I'm trying to do only is to convince everybody that life is worthwhile, that it's great, and that it's the only thing, and look to yourself to live it. That's my really total message in a way, I would say. Though I can be cerebral and I can go into the finesse of uh, authorship and so on, but I don't like that. I don't like that side of me. Do you know what I mean? I prefer this other side. And by the way, I call it Zen. And it is Zen. But the first time that I came across it was uh, with a young Hindu, much younger than me, whom I hired as a messenger in the Western Union. And he had been a follower of Gandhi, had walked with him on the salt march and so on. And he one day handed me a, an essay that he wrote. And the essay was titled uh, something like The No Principle. And it was the very essence of Zen. I don't know whether he had heard of Zen at that time. I rather doubt it. It wasn't uh, very popular. This was 1920-something. I'm surprised you put labels on your kind of thinking. That's so individual. I'm surprised yeah. you call it Zen. I said I uh, was influenced by. Yes, I am. I don't follow any cult, really. No, I have. I have no religion, no philosophy, except uh, my own, which I can't give a label to. Do you know? I have no label for it. Hmm. The unlabeled Henry Miller with Connie Goldman in California. Tell me, where is fancy bread? Some say in fancy bakeries. But seriously, folks, the art of our program often finds its inspiration in cards and letters addressed to NPR, Washington, D.C., 20036. Whence this program comes to you courtesy of every human being with funds provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Your producer is Robert Molesky, associate producer Jay Kernis, production assistant Gigi Yellen, your engineer is John Widoff, and I'm probably Oscar Brand, another voice in the wind. This is NPR, National Public Radio.